1: to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Our next guest on the line with us today, William Inboden, Executive Director and William Powers, Jr. Chair at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. Welcome to the program, William.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you guys.
0: William, you wrote a fantastic book that was just released called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. We have like what I'd like to call the foursome of the court set of malcontents. We have North Korea, Iran, Russia, and China. And now we have, you know, Russia, it's almost a year now, invaded um, Ukraine. What lessons could today's lawmakers and policymakers learn about how Ronald Reagan and his staff and secretaries handled the Cold War?
2: Great question. I do think there certainly are some some lessons for today. I'll I'll just highlight two of them. The first, of course, is Reagan's uh, defense policy was summed up in "peace through strength," and you know he really did want to maintain and preserve peace. He wanted to keep the Cold War cold. Obviously, he didn't want to you know get destroyed, the world to get destroyed in a nuclear apocalypse. But he knew that the biggest obstacle to peace was uh, Soviet communism and that american weakness was provocative and so uh in building up america's strength and of course he was very focused on our military strength but also our our economic strength uh, the strength of our values the strength of our, our international leadership that's how he wanted to to box the soviets in and pursue a negotiated solution uh given them given them no no other choice let them know that you know milita- their their military power uh, was not going to achieve their ends and so Thinking about our challenges with those, you know, four different uh, countries today, as different as they as they are. Uh, I do think that we would have a, a better hand in addressing them, a more Reaganesque esque hand, if we um, were you know, putting more resources into our military, not just, not just more money, but uh, helping to leverage America's technological edge um, with the, you know, the next generation of, uh, of weapon systems, uh, and then doubling down on the, the strength of our, our values as you know, the greatest free country in the world. Uh, and we could you know, talk some more about those details. The second part of uh, Reagan's playbook that I think really applies today is – He saw the Cold War as a battle of ideas, uh, not just... a rivalry between the powerful Soviet Union and the powerful United States. He saw it fundamentally as a battle of ideas, and saw tyranny, Soviet tyranny, as an idea to be defeated. Uh, and I think again we've lost some of that dimension as well uh, today. I mean, what's you know one commonality that Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran all have is they're all dictatorships. They're all vicious tyrannies. You know, seeking to impose uh their uh, their world views on on other countries on on as much of the rest of the world as they as they can and um that's what reagan of course saw was the threat with the soviet uh, soviet union uh, trying to impose you know com- communism communist dictatorships on on the rest of the world and so uh seeing these threats as uh as fundamentally about bad totalitarian ideas uh, and that America should have confidence in our ideas and our values and, and, uh, and waging our competition with these adversaries uh, in that level. Uh, how
1: much – it seems to have changed quite a bit because I'm a Cold War baby. I grew up in that era. We all understood, everyone in this country understood that it was a battle of ideas, that we were facing real global adversaries. How much are we hampered right now by uh, essentially the cultural inability – um, you know i mean it's it's kind of refer- you know you have people who would even call it racism if you 're critical of China or other countries where the people who are different and don 't look like us um and you know there's really not a sense of national unity to fight back against these global forces now that we used to have how How critical is it that we start redeveloping some of that
2: It is fundamental, I think your diagnosis is is exactly right. But again, uh, I'll say that this was a challenge that President Reagan faced as well, right? I mean, you know, as you mentioned, being a Cold War baby, I, I am too. I mean, the 1970s were a lousy decade for our country. We were very demoralized from losing the first war in our history in Vietnam. And then, uh, you know, the OPEC oil embargo, uh, our stagnant uh, economy with runaway inflation, the Iran hostage crisis made us look weak. And so many Americans had just lost faith in, in our country, didn't, you know, didn't believe in ourselves, had, had imbibed a lot of that narrative of, of American decline or blame America first, particularly we saw that with so much of the left in the 1970s. And you know, when I talked about Reagan's vision of peace through strength, part of the strength that he wanted to restore for America was just the strength of our national unity, of believing in ourselves again as, as a country, of knowing that we're the you know, great, greatest country on earth and that we we have a lot to be confident about. And so, uh, he wanted to restore that American, American spirit. uh, remind us that, you know, we may not be a perfect country, but we're a very good country and the world is a better place when we are, when we are strong and united. So it takes, it takes political leadership. You know, I, we're not, I'm, you know, I'm afraid we're not seeing that right now from the from the Biden administration. But uh, I think it's possible to restore the American spirit and our, our sense of our American, our, our country's greatness uh, again, uh, just as just as Reagan did in his own day. As you were writing your book
0: um, and you were going through files and FOIA requests and things of those natures, who is an unsung hero in the Reagan administration? That doesn't get a lot of adulation or recognition. We always have Schultz, you know, Weinberger, great men um, who were up for the task. But who was somebody, as you did your research, that really surprised you? That really had Reagan's vision at heart.
2: Yeah, uh, great question. And, and the answer is Bill Clark. Um, he's a name that unfortunately is too much forgotten these days. I hope my book can help uh, uh, revive his historical memory. But he was um, Reagan's, probably Reagan's closest friend, other than the First Lady, Nancy Reagan. Uh, Clark had been Reagan's uh, chief of staff when Reagan was governor of California, and then had been on the California Supreme Court. And President Reagan made Clark his second national security advisor. And while Clark was national security advisor, he's the one who really the <laughs> took Reagan's strategic vision of pursuing victory in the Cold War rather than just coexistence or containing communism. He took that strategic vision and translated it into a number of very sophisticated national security strategies. And these these documents were, you know, Reagan and his team spent months working on them. They were highly classified at the time, but they were the guidance for, you know, our, our military, our intelligence services, uh, even the State Department on how to uh, implement Reagan's vision of a peaceful victory in the cold war and that wouldn't have happened without without bill bill clark and so he was a he was a very humble man he never wrote his own memoir he wasn't linking to the press all the time about how great he was uh, he was just there to <laughs> faithfully serve reagan and his and his vision um, and looking back i think we uh, owe a lot of the success of reagan's policies to having bill clark as his national security advisor
0: all right so you brought up an issue that sam and i talk about a lot it seems like great leaders have close friends who could tell them they're out of line mm-hmm. that no no no, you got to look at this way and it's not adversarial, but for someone like Reagan, I'm sure when Bill Clark came to him, he listened. he had got due respect and they were able to go back and forth. Is that part of leadership that you think see for example, I don't think Donald Trump ever had that mm-hmm. and I think they are a good moderator. <laughs> they're a good lease to say, hey, 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 you're getting way out of bounds there. And also, they're loyal to these people at the same time. So like you said, Bill Clark did not write his own memoirs. Mm. He was loyal to Ronald Reagan, loyal to his vision, which made the world a better place. And as 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 being a professor and studying, do you see that a lot in leadership?
2: So, I, you're right. It's an, it's an essential attribute. Uh, great leaders uh, have to have enough, that balance of confidence in themselves and humility to have other strong, capable people around them who can shoot straight with them. Yeah. Who can tell them, you know, Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, you know, general, you know, whatever the title is, hey, uh, you know me, I'm loyal to you. I've got your best interests at heart. I've got our mission's best interests at heart. I got to level with you. This isn't working. You're out of line. You're missing this, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And Reagan absolutely had that. You know, Clark was certainly one of them. Um, George Shultz, who you mentioned earlier, who, you know, I portray very favorably in the book as a great Secretary of State. He also had that with Reagan. He was very loyal to Reagan throughout. He was channeling Reagan's vision, but he also had enough of an open door and candor with Reagan that he could, um, again, tell him when uh, he thought, you know, President Reagan needed to hear something differently. Uh, And the First Lady, Nancy Reagan, she was Careful to stay out of policy stuff, uh, and Reagan, you know, made sure that she stayed out of policy stuff. But when it came to um, uh, things like the overall uh, dignity of the office, or even a few staff who were not loyal to Reagan or didn't have his best interests at heart, she would shoot straight with him as well on that. On things he needed to to, to come clean and fix. Um, Jim Baker, another one, very effective as Secretary of State. Again, he was a little more personally moderate yes. than Reagan as a as a conservative, but but as Secretary, uh, excuse me, as, as White House chief of staff. Sorry, I misspoke. As White House chief of staff, Baker was really effective in running and managing the White House, managing relations with Congress and helping get Reagan's uh, agenda implemented. Um, And, you know, there's a good case to be made that the Iran-Contra scandal wouldn't have happened if Baker had still been there as chief of staff helping to, uh, you know, watch Reagan's back with, you know, a few other people who are freelancing without his authorization.
0: We're with William Imboden. He is the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. Um, Do you feel America is missing these wise old men, we'll say wise old men and women today, that would really help us with these policy struggles that we're having as a nation?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, this was another thing that really came out in the course of researching and writing this book is uh, Reagan just had a phenomenally capable team around him. You know, they were they were very strong-willed. They you know often didn't agree with each other, but they were all you know quite loyal to him and his overall vision and just tremendously accomplished people. You know, George Shultz being one that we mentioned, um, uh, Jim Baker being another, Bill Casey the CIA director, Jean Kirkpatrick uh, the Reagan's ambassador to the UN, the first woman to hold that role. You know, brilliant, uh, fierce, very committed to advancing freedom and opposing communism. Incredibly capable uh you know vice President Bush uh, you know very capable pedig- pedigree there there as well um, so it was a really it was a remarkable team team of rivals at the time but remarkably capable people and um, you know the a collection of uh, of that that kind of talent and, and experiences uh, would be much much welcome today we just don't have that you know near as much in public life anymore and it's a real shame and it's to the detriment of our country
1: uh, William. Before we have a just about a minute before we go to our break here, and then you're going to be coming back and joining us for our next segment, I assume folks can get your book on Amazon, uh, but it, do you have a website or other uh, you know social media you'd like people to be able to follow you at?
2: Yeah I'm not personally on social media, but um, oh, it's a I'm smart a smart man. Yeah, uh, probably better for my sanity, but not as good for book promotion, right? So, uh, but,
0: <laughs> we'll do that um, for you. We'll do that okay, for you. Yeah.
2: But the, um, the Clement Center uh, uh, for National Security that I run at the University of Texas, we have pretty active social media. So it's uh, at Clement Center is our Twitter account. ClementCenter.org is our is our website, and there's a quite a bit of material in my book that you can be found there.
1: Fantastic, right. folks! We're going to be coming right back with William Inboden, Executive Director, and William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas Austin. Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone on the line with us right now, William Inboden, Executive Director and William's Power, William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Austin, Texas. He is also the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the World on a Brink, uh, which you can get at Amazon.com. We highly recommend you check out that book. Obviously. Uh, as someone in in my mid-40s, Reagan is by far the best president still of my lifetime with all respect to, to people who might now say otherwise. Um, William, as you were doing this book, is there is there a personal characteristic or trait, something Reagan had that really helped separate him and made him such an effective leader and able to communicate to people who maybe didn't share his views? So. Oh.
2: Yeah, I will mention two two things. Um, The first is, while he had you know very strong convictions and strategic vision about uh, you know the. The vulnerabilities of the Soviet Union and how American power could really help crack it apart, and uh, and yet still you know maintain a peaceful victory in the Cold War. He also had what you can call strategic empathy, where he was good about seeing the world through the eyes of others, including trying to see the world through the eyes of Soviet leaders. It didn't mean he agreed with them at all, right? Um, but that made him a much more effective negotiator. He knew where some of their vulnerable points were, and he knew how far he could he could push them. So, you know in June of 1987 when he goes to Berlin and stands there at the Brandenburg Gate and says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, such an iconic moment in the Cold War all of his staff had Reagan's staff said don't say that don't say that's going to be too provocative but because he had already spent a lot of time with Gorbachev because he was kind of inside Gorbachev's head in some ways he he had a sense that he could he could push Gorbachev that far with that demand and it wouldn't it wouldn't wouldn't backfire um, then one other attribute that would really came out of the course of my research is Reagan had a very strong Christian faith, and, you know, he was often quiet about it, he wasn't a regular churchgoer, but this comes out in his diaries, in his letters, uh, in some of his private meetings, and that was really a source of strength for him, especially after he Survived the assassination attempt uh, and he really felt like God had spared him for the purpose of winning the Cold War and ending the threat of nuclear destruction and that that gave him a lot of uh, i think both serenity but also confidence uh, when you know critics were fiercely denouncing him uh, when the media was turning against him when when Congress was giving him a hard time that gave him i think the the strength to stay stay the course and feel like he was you know serving a higher calling there. How how much
1: how much is that ability to get inside your your opponents or other people's head missing? I when you said that I really started thinking about the build up to the invasion of Ukraine and the fact that we we made and the world made a bunch of Fairly significant strategic blunders in their interaction with Vladimir Putin leading up to that, and it just seems like there there aren't any, there aren 't any world leaders in the West who truly understand Putin the way you 're talking about uh, Reagan having understood gorbachev mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, really been missing. Yeah, and we've you know misjudged Putin for a couple of, couple of decades now. And you know, to be clear, as I said earlier, with Reagan, getting inside the head of a, a foreign leader, you know, especially a more adversarial one, doesn't mean you're agreeing with him or being an apologist for him. Sometimes it can make you more effective. And you know, knowing what he's up to, knowing what his vulnerabilities are, uh, but also you know, coming up with uh, off, off ramps or ways to avoid an even, an even worse conflict. Yeah, and that's um, that's been you know, widely missing among Western leaders, you know, European leaders and and, and American leaders. Interestingly, I will give Zelensky some credit here. I think he actually understands what's in Putin's head a little bit more, Uh, you know, as we look at how effective he's been as a leader of the Ukrainian people, but also not just in inspiring and rallying the Ukrainians, but also uh, uh, the way they've designed so many of their their battlefield tactics and even their their social media. I mean, so he's really put Putin on his back heels, partly because I think he understands Putin very well.
0: With William Emboden,
2: he is the author
0: of *The Peacemaker*, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the World on the Brink. Don't be lazy; go out and buy it for your loved ones for Christmas. Um, William, in the 1980s, most experts believed the Soviet Union was strong, it was stable, it would last forever. I remember watching as a teenager, see it—you know, 60 minutes about how great their missile system was and all of this. Um, Again, these are the same type of experts that just misjudge Russia going into Ukraine. These are the same experts that seem to misjudge every foreign adversary we have in some ways, not that we should take them lightly. Why do they keep missing the mark about Russia and some of these other countries?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And this was, like I said, the source of Reagan's, I think, strategic genius is that he was among the very few leaders who saw the Soviet Union's vulnerabilities Uh, when, you know, all the Soviet experts at the time thought that the Soviet economy was strong and durable, that their military was was so so formidable uh, that the Soviet people still believed in their system. And I think, you know, part of uh, Reagan's uh, insights there was because he had some core convictions about uh, the... Uh, the superiority of free markets and just knowing that, you know, command economies you know, run by the states that violate private property rights and you know, all the pathologies of communism just can't sustain themselves. He believed in the virtues of, of free societies, of people having political freedom and religious freedom and you know, freedom to choose their own leaders. And he just knew from his meetings with Soviet dissidents and other critics of the regime and you know, former political prisoners that the people don't, don't believe in this system. And so one problem is when we're only focused on the leaders and whatever official statistics they may be putting out. We've We've seen this with China, right? For decades, we believed all the official statistics of the Chinese economy. But you've got to be having some sort of channels of connection to ordinary people in these societies who are living under these tyrannical systems who sometimes will have a very, very different view of what the what the reality is. I mean, for Reagan, just a, you know, a, big, a common sense thing was he realized the Soviet Union couldn't feed its own people. That's why it kept on having to buy wheat from the West. He thought, wait a minute, this is the largest country in the world. They've got millions of acres of what should be fertile farmland and yet this uh this backward oppressive system can't even grow enough wheat to feed its own people, that's just not sustainable. Um so and and you know we you know, oh, China, I, I today, can't there believe there you be use I can't
0: believe you use common sense. I can't believe <laughs> you use common
2: sense. Right? Yeah. I mean it's
0: sort of like when you it's sort of like today when people say, well we're not in a recession and you know by economic metrics we aren't. But then you hear food banks Um, the requests for food banks are up 76%. Um, People are cutting back seeing mom and dad to save on gas. I mean, and that seems like something Ronald Reagan, because he practiced common sense, would pick up that a lot of leaders don't pick up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and that's where he did not only want to trust the experts and the official statistics laying on his desk. He really wanted to talk to ordinary people living in these different societies, whether it was ordinary Americans about the the suffering they had had under Jimmy Carter's you know disastrous economy, or talking to ordinary Soviets who had been able to escape uh, you know from from the Soviet Union, escape from behind the Iron Curtain, and tell him what life was really like.
1: Fantastic. Uh, We have just about a minute left here. We're with William N. Bowden, Executive Director and William Powers, Jr. Chair at the Clements Center. You can follow them at clementscenter.org or at Clements Center on Twitter. You can also get his book. uh, Right now, it's available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And folks, take the trip to your local bookstore. Support your local bookstore uh, and get this man's book, uh, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and The World on the Brink. Any last words, William, before we wrap up for today?
2: Yeah, one final thing I'll say. It just was so much fun to work on with the book. Is Reagan's speeches? You know, he was called the great communicator for a, a reason. I would encourage your um, listeners to go back and watch his speeches on YouTube or, or read about them in the book. Uh, and he personally wrote a lot of his greatest speeches. You know, he had some helpful speechwriters working for him, but he had a, he was really the main craft uh, craftsman of his own speeches. So, the Westminster Address on Marxism, Leninism, ending up on the ash heap of history. Evil Empire, uh, Tear Down This Wall, The Boys of Pointy The Hawk. best communicator
1: of my lifetime. Breaking Battlegrounds will be coming back in just a moment.
0: You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor cost less.
1: Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. On the line with us, our next guest, Chris Stairwalt, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute with a focus on American politics, voting trends, public opinions, and the media. Boy, that means we got a lot to talk about this week, Chris. <laughs>
0: Chris, first question Did you run out and buy all your family and friends A $99 Trump digital trading card? Well, you know I I
3: I find it, you know, obviously (laughs) Ridiculous, but I will say this and You know, Trump says he made Almost $4.4 million Selling 44,000 of those things In basically a day I believe it And the thing is you know, we can look at polls that say that Rod DeSantis beats Trump in a head-to-head matchup. We can look at polls that say that Republicans are um, increasingly uh, hoping that someone else will be their nominee in 2024. But Trump has a I hate to say it, but like a, a religious or messianic kind of hold on what looks to be like a quarter of the Republican Party. And that's worth a lot, and not just in terms of Griff's kind of stuff about selling pictures of himself dressed up like Iron Man, but <laughs> in terms of you need people to go vote, you need people to care, and you can certainly see a scenario in which the Republican Party repeats the mistakes that it's made in 2016 and has a crowded field against Trump who has the fanatical support of a core group. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I, personally, I actually might have bought those as an investment if they were actual physical cards, but I'm just not down with this NFT thing. I'm the, not. I'm not NFC's buying this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
0: mean, his his audience, his audience, his audience is almost like the Grateful Dead followers. Yeah, it, it's really amazing in a lot of ways. Well,
3: and the other, and the other thing with Trump though is he is like a lot of those old acts, and his his. Uh, his events are like concerts. They're like uh, Grateful Dead shows or whatever they call it, Dead Again now, Uh, or uh, Jimmy Buffett or something else. The oldsters come out and what do they want to hear? They want to hear the hit. They want to hear the, you know, Elton John on his 50th farewell tour. They don't want to hear new material. They want to hear Tiny Dancer. So I think for Trump, his problem is, and, you know, I, I just chronicled the advantages that he has, but the the problem that he has is, is that he's now sort of, I call him mega Jeb Bush. He's got, he has baggage. He has a record. He's not interesting. He's not new. Uh, and now he has priors. And he's got to continue to say that the 2020 election was stolen. He's got to continue to... Stick up for people who are unpopular, but who are part of his universe. He's got all of this stuff like talking about the issues, talking about what happened is harder for him. So he is not nearly as nimble as he was eight years ago.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And and. I think that those rallies of his are kind of an underrated fundamental part of his popularity and the sort of cult of personality that's been built around him. Because you look at what a, a political rally looked like pre-Trump. You know, you have 10 politicians coming up to stage for 10 minutes each to speak. Halfway through, there's no one in the crowd who isn't ready to pass out and go to sleep. And, and then he put on these these rock shows. And that's there's an audience for that.
3: Well, I think these days there's a huge audience for meet space connection, right? And what MAGA has offered in a lot of ways um, is a special degree of intense connection in a you know strongly dislocated society. We are a highly alienated place.
1: That, uh, alien- that is a great comment. I, I'm, I don't know if, if you've read the book The Great Degeneration, but it was, it was one that had an impact on me some years ago reading it and the, the lack of connection in American society with people and moving.
3: I, w- I would also recommend my colleague uh, Tim Carney's book Alienated America. Uh, the, the, the social science there, the research is clear. Um, we have what Blaise Pascal called the, the God-shaped void – uh, inside of us, but whatever it is, the the yearning for connection, the yearning for being part of something bigger than ourselves and more important than us, and all of those things, and the and the the commonalities and friendships that it brings, oh, an over you're very right. An overlooked part of MAGA was that people have fun at the shows, right? Yeah. people enjoy it. They like it. They buy the merch. They see their friends. They they go, and in a time where we are uh, sort of digitized, and, and we've become NFTs ourselves. Uh, that offers something special.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can really see the connection when you're out at one of those events, or at the Carry Lake events that we had here in Arizona. Uh, we're going to be coming back for another segment here, just momentarily, with Chris Stierwalt, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. Coming back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. On the line with us right now, Chris Steyerwalt Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also the author of Every Man a King, A Short, Colorful History of American Populists. Uh, Chris, how do folks follow you and your work and the work that the American Enterprise Institute is doing?
3: Well, they should first, before they do anything, they should buy Breaking News, uh, the best-selling book that I wrote about, uh the uh unholy <laughs> alliances and distortions that have occurred in politics uh because of the atomization of the media landscape it's a it's a history uh if there are jokes uh there's some philosophy <laughs> in it uh there's some of my own story in it and uh it's great uh i i i find uh, i find the best that i can say about books that i write very often is that it is. I'm not embarrassed uh, that I wrote it, and I'm definitely not embarrassed about uh, broken news. And I, you should, you can follow me on uh, Instagram because I actually post on Instagram at C. but I am tweeted hmm. for at uh, Chris Steyerwalt, so some stuff appears there. Uh, but I'm around, man. Uh, you can watch <laughs> me on News Nation. You can read me at the <laughs> Dispatch. Uh, I am there. I, I am not. Uh, I am not fat because I'm not working. I'm fat because I eat too much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I, I, you, Chris, I resemble you that me? remark. Chris, I want to talk about your book a little bit, but tell us about News Nation. I, when News Nation came out, Sam and I were talking. Saying they may really hit the jackpot if they just give both sides. If they just, you know, just the facts, man. Well, like the old Dragnet line. Hey, how, I, how's that going?
3: I, I, it's going. It's going really well. Um, I, I think the. The way to think about media and politics is that the parties got very, very weak. Part of the reason that partisanship is so strong is that the parties became very weak. Probably the single worst piece of legislation enacted in my adult lifetime uh, were the uh, campaign finance reform changes at the turn of the century. uh, Really, really bad. Uh, And as we have watched super PACs, and the timing was really bad, because, of course, they were trying to solve a problem that didn't really exist in the way that they thought it did, but was also about to be obliterated by technology. The old days of having uh, capture, well, maybe think about it this way. Who would you rather your elected officials be captured by? Would you rather them be captured by large-dollar donors or small-dollar donors, assuming that they're going to be captured? And I'm not saying everybody gets captured or the whatever, and it's a matter right. of degree. But if, but if you have to choose between people who are going to be captured by large donors or captured by small donors, it's it sounds like it would be better to be captured by small donors. But that creates different incentives, too, right? And those right, incentives right. Relate, relate to performative outrage and jackassery, right? It relates to goofball conduct. Engage that is designed to palpate the fear and anger
1: well, gland. It, Chris, as someone as someone who's running donor. for office and gathering those checks, I got to tell you, it relates it relates very clearly to absolutism. Yeah, I, I have, that's right. I have never collected a check from anyone a large check from anyone who's absolutely said, "I need you to do all of these things for me to support you," and and laid okay. out a huge list. They're generally looking for just good leadership. The small dollar donors, I've had a lot of them come up and, and go through a whole litany of questions and if you yeah. don't support every one, they, they're they're gone.
3: And how do we get to the next thing? And by the way, what are you running for?
1: Oh I'm I'm running for the Phoenix City Council, so I have got a runoff that now That's goes into wild. March.
3: That's wild. That's gotta be wild. I love Arizona politics. It's crazy out there. So uh <laughs> It, Good
1: luck. It is insanity and I'm enjoying every minute of
0: it. So all right so that brings a, that brings a point here Chris Chris and Sam that brings a point up, Chris like get your opinion. you wrote a fantastic piece on the pearls of giving up on persuasion. Why have politicians and parties given up on trying to persuade people? They just keep thinking I'm gonna turn out my base and that will solve it and that was half of Republicans problem in Arizona. They just thought I'd turn out my base which they did. But it's not enough. Sam and I would tell people over and over, you cannot win in Arizona unless you get McCain and Ducey voters. That's just the Um, map.
3: Did you you all read uh, uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables?
0: Yes. Yes. Long ago.
3: So the problem was that if the penalty for stealing a loaf of bread is the same as the penalty for murder, What would you do to prevent being caught stealing a loaf of bread?
0: Right. Exactly. Right. Right?
3: So we we have a problem with inputs on our politicians, which is. You can only lose once. And the sanction that primary voters have, which is this is 15 to 20 percent of the electorate. The sanction that they can deliver is exactly the same that the sanction that 60% of the electorate can deliver in November, the penalty for losing a primary and losing in general are the same, which is that you are not elected or reelected. So that gives 15% of the electorate, the same amount of authority that 60% of the electorate does. And that's messed up. Uh, We have had a 40 year, 40 50 year experiment with primaries and it's just been a disaster and it keeps getting worse. And Cycle after cycle, it keeps delivering these punishing head blows to the United States of America. If you have to win a primary in which those kinds of small dollar voters, small dollar donors we're talking about, these activists, that 15 to 20% of the electorate, if you have to satisfy them first, you by no means can get caught reaching out to the other side across the aisle in the general election. Or when you get to office, when you get to office, you have to go hate the other people in order to prove to the people who hold you hostage in the primary that you will absolutely never do anything when you are elected. The only thing that you'll do when you're elected is generate buzzy clips and sell NFTs, and you absolutely positively will not do anything to govern the country.
1: Chris, I have to to ask because I I thought that was a really – It's sort of an interesting point and see what you think about this. I think one of the mistakes that the larger money donors are making is that they're often jumping in and getting behind a candidate basically before the primaries begin and labeling that that's our our person. I think they would be much smarter to wait into not not through the primary, but into the primary process and see who emerges first, because I I think there's a real kickback from the base of going. You're trying to stuff these people down our throats.
3: So who's our list right now? Right. Um, if we look at the Republican side, what's on the list? So Trump being weak, looking weak, you can see it. You can smell blood in the water. You can tell that Trump, I, you know, as I call him, the mega Jeb Bush. You can see that it's not working. Uh, and uh, NFT proceeds aside, uh, the polls demonstrate the problem. And why is Ron DeSantis leading him by, you know, more than a dozen points? In two polls. Why is this happening? Because Republicans want something else. Okay, so that's Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. But it's not going to be Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. It's going to be Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Glenn Youngkin and Tim Scott, and Larry Hogan and Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and Ted Cruz and on and on and on. And the whole swell gang of guys and gals will show up. Part of the reason that they will show up is because we have a lot of very successful people in America. And when people come to them, when these when these those who yearn for power come to them and say, if you could just get me a little super pack, I don't need a big super pack. Just, you know, come on. Where's 10 million bucks between friends? Can you and some other billionaires throw some cash in here? Like, take Ted Cruz. Nobody wants Ted Cruz to run for president, probably even including Ted Cruz, right? On some level, Ted i I'm Cruz guessing goes,
1: Ted's family is an absolute no on this one. <laughs> I don't know.
3: It gets him out of the house. I'm not sure. So
0: I don't know. I
3: kid. I kid. I kid. I kid. But there's no, there's no, like, yearning in America. The Ted Cruz moment is not here. But he's got these rich people that have supported him, and he's got an organization, and he's got people around. Do you know the story about why Tom Selleck wasn't a bigger movie star? Tom Selleck had all of his friends working with him on Magnum P.I., and when movies would come along, he would have to pass because he didn't want to give up the show, and so it ran for eight seasons instead of what should have happened for Tom Selleck, which is it should have run for four or five seasons, and then he should have said, okay, now I'm going to go to Hollywood. Now we're going to do the real thing, and I'm going to have to leave Higgins uh, and TC and Rick behind uh, with Ice Pick in Honolulu. But he, he didn't do that because too many people were looking at him. It's real pressure. It really happens in politics. <laughs> and when you have billionaires who give you lots of money, then you don't want to say, well, actually, I decided I'm kind of a lame and people don't really like me, and I actually don't like doing it either, so peace, love, and booty grease. I'm out of here. I'll see you later. You can't do that. So you end up running <laughs> and you slog through, and you guys have seen the joyless, awful presidential campaigns of people like Jeb Bush, right. terrible dragging themselves through the work of like, I guess I have to do this. I guess I have to do this. And we're going to have in the Republican side this cycle, lots of those folks, because the weaker Trump looks, the more enticing the chance to run will be and the more crowded the field will get.
1: That, that makes sense, and unfortunately, it, it makes too much sense, and I think you're right. That's what's going to happen, and that's exactly how you open the door for Trump to win the nomination.
3: Yes, and look, I – okay, so that's <laughs> – okay, so thing one is the quadrennial cycle – the environment for the quadrennial cycle is substantially set by what happens in the midterms. What happened for the Democrats in 2018 – they thought the bold Democratic progressive moment had arrived. And Democratic socialism and Bernie Sanders, rah, rah, sis, blah, blah. Everybody uh, runs left in the Democratic primaries, which, by the way, helps Joe Biden in the long run, because he was alone over there with Amy Klobuchar throwing staplers at people. And nobody, he, nobody else was competing with Joe Biden for the mainstream Democratic moderate uh, vote except for Klobuchar. By the end, all the survivors had migrated back over. Pete Buttigieg went from radical insurgent to uh, comforting uh, mainstreamer by the end of his run. The Republicans have concluded correctly that Donald Trump is a boat anchor for their party, right? And that this national, populistic, quasi-conservative, whatever, argle-bargle they've come up with is a loser with voters. Republicans have lost three cycles in a row. 2018, 2020, and now 2022, though technically a win, was a, was the worst miss that I have seen worse in its own way than what Hillary Clinton managed to do in 2016. So you have all of those inputs for Republicans. So they're going to reject Trumpism and all of its works and, and start to migrate the other way. Then the seesaw will get out of balance. And about the time we roll into Iowa, uh, they'll start running back. <laughs> they'll migrate back the other way. And that's a very, very long way of saying, as Winston Churchill said, uh, you know, for Republicans, the only way out is three. They're going to just have to do it. There's no hack for this about like, well, we'll change this and change that. And then we won't really have to deal with Donald Trump and we won't have to do this other stuff. Donald Trump will have to be defeated. If the Republicans want to get rid of him, they're going to have to beat him. They're
1: not going to be able to avoid it. I, you know, I think that is absolutely true. But one of the things you talk about when we roll back into Iowa and those Trump rallies, one of the lessons for other candidates is, is should be not to campaign in a button down staid manner, one. And two, and I think this was a legitimate part of the Donald Trump phenomenon movement, whatever you want to call it, that mainline Republicans have been missing for years is the real focus on the working class, on blue-collar voters?
3: Well, yes, but Tim Pawlenty tried. Lots of people tried to wear their church sleeves rolled up. And uh, Jack Kemp cared deeply about the plight of working-class Americans. Lots of people cared a lot about a lot of things. But there's two things that you can't fool. A kid, well, three things. A kid, a dog or a primary election voter, they know, they can tell, and they saw Trump, and they were like, that's my man. That is my guy. And people who act like Donald Trump look like idiots uh, worse than Donald Trump looks like an idiot.
1: Wow. Well, excellent commentary. Chris Stierwald, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, thank you so much for joining us on Breaking Battlegrounds today. We really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you back on again in the future.
3: Merry Christmas. Have a great weekend. Good to talk to y'all.
1: You as well. Chuck, great program today. Folks, definitely make sure you tune in and catch all of our episodes. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Subscribe and download the podcast, folks. That'll do it for this week. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. All that good stuff to all of you. Breaking Battlegrounds we will be back next week.
0: The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.